So, of course, the, our brains were shaped by natural selection, the bulk of human evolution, hundreds of thousands of years spent in small collectives, nomadic uh, clans and exceedingly small villages, groups of six to ten adults with uh, some children thrown in. The most vital attribute and trait a human being could have was the ability to become popular to the other members of the group, to be liked. Those who were liked would have been t well taken care of when they were sick, when they couldn't collect or forage for the scant resources that were available at that time. Uh, Humans were often very malnutrition, uh, malnourished, and uh, there was uh, an exceeding reliance upon other members of the group just to survive. If you weren't a team player, you would be ostracized. Those who weren't popular would not have been able to live long enough to pass on their genes to succeeding uh, generations. And so over the course of evolution, brain was installed with a bunch of very key circuits that essentially influence our behavior towards seeking constant affiliation and support of groups. Um, we have, and also is to seek secure attachment with others to begin with, ventral medial circuit of the brain, which is otherwise known as the ventral affect, is the part of your brain that essentially processes all self-related information. And it, this circuit features some of the most influential regions of the brain, such as the amygdala, which is the essentially the smoke alarm of your brain that, cre that triggers fight, flight, or freeze, and is the core of most of our emotional responses. It activates the cingulate, which is what focuses our attention, striatum, which builds habits, and this key area, the ventral medial region, which uh, integrates emotional experiences. Essentially what it boils down to is uh, it primes us to constantly monitor how other people are looking at us and regarding us and making sure that they are sending back feedback or signals suggesting that they approve and like us. When all goes well, the uh, Venn neurons, which are the most um, uh, essentially capable of developing multiple wide array of uh, uh, synaptic connections, Venn neurons in conjunction with the ventral medial, trigger an area in the cingulate, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, the DACC, I can't say that again. DACC to, uh, if we've gone through an experience with, associated with rejection, or somebody devalues us, or turns away, cut, you know, belittles us, scorns us, disconnects, it triggers that region of the brain to lower the level of opiates in our system. So our bodies literally feel more painful. Which, and it also uh, triggers the amygdala to uh, uh, 
to tighten or activate the vagal vagus nerve, which clenches very often around the chest area, which creates the sensation of heartbreak. When people experience great loss, uh, abandonment, uh, a breakup, loss of a loved one, the, the uh, DACC triggers physical pain and it issues a directive for the amygdala to go into a state of essentially survival, the, sometimes known as a startle reflex, a clenching, a tightening of the muscle groups around the upper chest. And finally, if that wasn't bad enough, if that wasn't enough, it also, the nucleus accumbens is involved, and that's the area of the brain that releases uh, or triggers the release of dopamine, which is the reward neurotransmitter, when you've gone through a rejection experience or an experience associated with being devalued or somebody disregarding you, uh, it in turn lowers the level of dopamine. So you feel less rewarded, less likely to want to go out and interact with people. It can create states of dysthemia, uh, low-level depression. On the other hand, when all goes well and when you're connecting with someone and they give you signs of appreciation and kindness and attention, or otherwise known as attunement, they maintain focus on you, then voila, up goes the opiates, your body feels better. Up goes the uh, dopamine, the body significantly relaxes, no tightening in the vagal vagus nerve. Uh, so there's this priming to be social. If you'd like to read about it, uh, the greats in the field of social psychology, um, Matthew Lieberman, Naomi Eisenberger, Remison, and so many others. Cochiopo, uh, Cochiopo, sorry, uh, so many. Um, so we're primed to connect. And when we don't connect, when we feel um, people don't like us, it triggers feelings of uh, discomfort. Uh, the great social psychologist uh, Albert Bandura wrote, uh, de uh, developed the social learning theory which displayed that the bulk of human learning and human behavioral development is not from, you know, right now you're sitting and you're cognitively listening to me ramble on about this topic or some other topic. But actually, the bulk of learning comes from what's known as non-conscious behavioral mimicry, which is fancy terms for we unconsciously observe and imitate the behaviors of others, specifically the behaviors of others who are socially esteemed and well-valued by groups. In other words, the cool kids, those dreaded clans and grade school and high school that uh, seemed unapproachable and scary, as we enter them, our brains are primed to imitate at all costs the actions, views, behaviors, body language, if they smoke, 
we smoke and they, you know, uh, skip school, we skip school, whatever they do that gains approval and recognition, we are primed to imitate. If we don't gain admittance, then we will find the next group and then the next group until some group accepts us. And in my case, boy, that I have to drop down the groups. <laughs> I mean, there was never a question of me ever being admitted into anything remotely athletic, jocks, uh, anything that involved running and at the same time doing anything, or even running to begin with, was out of the question. Uh, but running and, you know, catching, throwing, uh, pretty much was not in my uh, set of behavioral capabilities. I was not particularly uh, uh, into uh, the other clubs and groups and uh, clans that were around. So I wound up with the only group that would accept me when I was 14, which at the time was called the Stoners. Those were the group where the only thing you had to do to gain any form of acceptance was be able to hold your own smoking pot. A very low bar to admittance. <laughs> oh, you had to like uh, unspeakable bands. We are constantly imitating the behaviors of those around us when we go into rooms where people are anxiously tapping our, their feet Studies show that likely within a minute we'll be tapping our feet anxiously even though we entered the room without any state of uh, discomfort or agitation. Very quickly we'll go into the body, imitate the body movements of those around us, and from the body movements we very quickly wind up in the exact same frame of mind as the people. It's known as emotion contagion. We imitate people by imitate, imitating their body language, their movements, their eye glances, their uh, utterances, and then pretty soon we wind up thinking the same thoughts, holding the same views, mimicking those as well. We also tend to abandon the traits that are shunned by groups we want to seek admittance to. One of the things that uh, stoners, I recall, uh, always shunned was anybody who had any narc tendencies was immediately shunned. That was the one thing you could never do. You could never tell on anybody. You could never report anyone. You had to, it was a strict oath. I guess we were kind of like a mid-school mafia. It's a, the code of omerta, whatever it is. Uh, so that was something that if anybody was rumored to be uh, uh, in league with uh, school administration or parents or anything like that, they were immediately shunned. Uh, over the years, of course, masculine initiation rights led to all kinds of uh, shunning of behavioral traits. In our society which so deeply rewards gender conformity uh, and the narrow definitions of gender thereof, we are uh, encouraged to 
to become, for instance, accepted in uh, peer groups of men, one has to essentially uh, eviscerate oneself of feelings of sadness, fear, indecisiveness, all of which are considered to, by those groups to be somehow uh, unmanly. Likewise, admittance into groups of young women and women have their own stringent rules and regulations. In time, to maintain uh, these connections which make us feel safe, and again, we are primed by evolution to seek connection, uh, to, to gain acceptance, uh, and to feel the pain of exclusion, isolation, if we don't, uh, over time we start scanning deeply other people's face for any signs of disapproval or approval, and that sets us up very often for seeing uh, things that aren't there. And this brings me up to one of my favorite clinical studies. And yes, the fact that I have a favorite clinical study, or a fact multiple favorite clinical studies is the very definition of the fact I'm a complete nerd, but I'll run with it. So there was a wonderful study by Kleck and Strenta in 1980. And in this study, what they did was they had a makeup artist paint extremely realistic scars on the faces of people who were in the study. So each of the participants in the study had these very sort of apparent, visible, nasty-looking scars painted onto their forehead. And to drive home just how disfigured they made the individual, they would show the person their scar in the mirror. They'd hold up a mirror and say, okay, this is what you look like, just so that you know. And then they'd take the mirror away, and right before the, the individual, the subject of the test, would start having conversations one-on-one -on -one with other people, the makeup artist would come back in, and here's where it gets really clever. The makeup artist would say, oh, I just need to touch you up for a moment. She'd bring out a moisturizer, and then when the subject wasn't aware of it, she would wipe the entire scar away. So there was no longer any scar on their forehead. So now what you have are subjects who believe they have scars, but they don't. In the study, virtually all of the participants reported that in their conversations with other people, the other people were looking at their scars and evaluating them negatively because of their appearance. Remember, there was nothing wrong with their appearance. The scar had been removed. The point of this study is that we already believe, due to what's called core shame, the early abandonments and times in our lives we've not gained acceptance or we've had unreliable connection with friends or early attachments with parents, we already go into much of our adult situations with this sense that there's something wrong with me, something unlovable, something that 
other people might be able to see and that's why they reject me, they don't like me. I really don't know what it is. That's the nature of core shame. It's this vague sense that something about my identity, who I am, my core self, uh, this vague notion that I am unlovable. And so the greater the degree of core shame we have, the more likely the individual in this test was to report that the other person was aghast at their appearance, even though there was nothing, again, wrong with the way they looked. The idea of being different in any way primes us for perception bias, wherein we analyze every little interaction, every glance, every uh, interpersonal event in terms of it being a uh, reaction to this vague sense of being damaged or broken or there's something wrong with me. In hunter-gatherer collectives, even though people were deeply primed to worry about what others thought, Luckily for them, you lived in a very small collective and you would see those individuals countless times a day. So if you feared that you had made some kind of mistake or gaffe or had said something wrong or had done something that had irritated the other individual, guess what? You'd see them 20, 30 minutes later and you could check out. Look at them, you know. You know, sort of, and if you're not conflict avoided, you might even ask them directly, hey, are you angry? Did I, you know, say something? And they might say, no, I just had something, I ate something that was wrong. I ate, you know, that wild boar that was running around that didn't agree with my stomach. It was not you at all. So we gauge very quickly how the other person thought about us, and then very quickly the emotional uh, unrest triggered by those regions we talked about in circuits we talked about earlier, the ventral medial and the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, those regions would be quieted. We would gain, regain the secure attachment with that individual and everything would be okay. But today, even though we live in the exact same brains, evolution is not caught up with our contemporary society. We're on your commute home tonight, you will see more people in the first 10 minutes outside of this door than your ancestors in a hunter-gatherer collective would have seen in their entire lifespan. They would see about 8 to 10 people. So it was easy for them to maintain affiliations because they only had 8 to 10 to worry about in their lifetime. But we still have these brains that want us to, at all costs, be likable. But now we're seeing literally tens of thousands of people in the course of days. Literally. So we are primed by evolution to even care when somebody in a subway sends us a nasty look. We'll never see them again. Their opinion does not matter. But tell that to the core regions of the brain that are set up to care.
and to care a lot what other people think. Today, people know much less about us, and so, even with people that might be somewhat important, work colleagues, neighbors, friends, after an unpleasant interaction, you might not see that individual for weeks on end. And so that painful, unsettled feeling will linger longer. And unfortunately, the longer that structure is triggered in, in association with that individual, the more likely you will believe that, in fact, the relationship is damaged. Because over time, synapses that are hot or triggered eventually become wired. There's an old Hobbes law of neurons that fire together, wire together. The longer they're, they're triggered, the more likely they are to get wired. So the more you fear something like, maybe this person doesn't like me, you don't see them for a while, they don't respond to your texts because they're busy, so you have no way of gauging the truth, you're more likely over time to assume that that's the truth. And then you will fall into the standard, perhaps, defensive mechanisms of avoidance coping, minimizing your feelings, developing a false self to try to win their favor back, all these strategies that don't work. One of the most disastrous qualities of this tendency to care what others think is it is directly attributable to the formation of what some people call the inner critic, uh, inner chatter that is disparaging and negative. Uh, essentially, from a Freudian perspective, the superego. The superego is an interesting faculty in the sense that when it's been studied clinically, it's a, an array of circuits that bridge both hemispheres of the brain, is partially conscious in that it can speak to us and tell us we suck, that we're lame, that we're not doing enough, that other people don't like us, that we should be doing more, what the hell am I doing on the beach, I should be at home organizing stuff or whatever, <laughs> and so forth. It's also got unconscious uh, circuits to it. It actually can trigger feelings of what the Buddha called Samvega, feelings of gut-wrench, physiological discomfort. People get that feeling in their stomach, almost a feeling of disgust when they think about something they said or did that might lead to some form of social embarrassment or some form of uh, interpersonal humiliation. So, um, uh, essentially, the greater we are seeking admittance to groups or individuals that will not accept us or set unrealistic standards of behaviors that we can't meet, the more likely we are to have a well-fueled inner critic that will be vicious. The inner critic starts as an internalization of the voice of parent figures when they issued socializing commands like, don't run uh, down the stairs, don't 
don't kick the dog, don't poke your sister, don't eat the cookies. We internalize those um, voice utterances for a while. It's healthy, but then over time, as we experience social rejections, that uh, inner chatter essentially co-ops those experiences and start using those examples as a way to constantly suggest that there's something wrong or broken about us. The superego constantly posits the idea that there's this ideal self that we're falling short of. So, um, I'll just say that uh, it's essential for us if we want to undo all of the negative attributes or results of our tendency to want to be liked at all costs. The first thing, and I'll, I'll just talk about a few ways we can address this. The first is that the most important thing we can do is to find a group of people that are accepting, compassionate, appreciative, that do not have very closed, unmeetable, rigid demands. Um, one of the things that cults have are high demands. They constantly belittle the backgrounds of individuals before they join a group. They constantly shame the individuals. They are... Uh, they tend to present their views as being perfect and the views of every other group and organization to be uh, false beliefs. They tend to punish for having any connections with individuals outside of the group. So that's just a couple of things on cults, by the way. Uh, but it's important to find a group, a community that accepts you especially accept the widest array of emotions and traits and impulses. One of the problems that we all face is to gain admittance or acceptance. We are all too willing to jettison entirely natural human um, attributes. I've seen and talked to members of really wonderful yoga communities that over time came to believe that if they ever were allowed to express their anger, it could lead to expulsion or shaming, and that there's something wrong with them. They're not practicing yogic principles when they start to feel angry or frustrated. Such a negative emotion they believe being a, uh, um, a litmus test for doing it wrong. Frankly, all emotions are entirely natural, necessary, and any group that penalizes having core emotions as being problematic, there's nothing wrong with the individual, there's something wrong with the principles of the group. Um, second, it's really important when you're in the presence of individuals who are judgmental or critical, and while you don't consciously want to gain their favor, 
given how much we are unconsciously set up to care and to try to be accepted and to be approved of, there are steps we can take to interrupt this tendency of non-conscious behavioral mimicry and adapting of other people's traits and views. The most important thing you can do is stop the process by stopping your body from following or falling into this uh, emotion contagion process. When you're with somebody who is rejecting, critical, who uh, has a tendency to be remote, uh, or you have perhaps an anxious relationship with a boss who's unreliable in their attention, sometimes being rewarding, other times not, or that could be a family member or a friend, in their presence, the most important thing to do is relax. Keep focused, interoception on the breath, relaxing your breath, softening your belly, relaxing the diaphragm. The more you don't engage the vagal vagus nerve, it reports back to the insula that everything's okay and that you don't need to take into consideration anything that's happening. You don't have to suddenly learn from the experience. Also what's key is maintaining a dispersed awareness. Try not to fixate on the facial expression of somebody who's rejecting or hypercritical or remote or has tendencies to be uh, unreliable. Instead, don't look away from them all the time. Just simply widen your uh, the perspective, taking the, the entire room relaxing the body. I've been practicing this for years, and I can tell you that um, so many of the tendencies I had developed in earlier life to gain admittance, especially into groups of other men who have toxic tendencies, especially in their hyper-masculinity, I no longer have any desire or any care or any tendency to copy or uh, align myself when I'm around them. I kind of find them all laughable, but I also, I directly attribute it to essentially relaxing physically in their presence, not allowing myself to fixate on how they regard me. Um, but the, one of the tools we'll be using now in the meditation is um, after we have an unpleasant interaction or emotional experience with someone, before it becomes essentially wired in as an actual learning or synaptically becomes some uh, emotional belief, we can essentially s disrupt that process by, uh, one, Relaxing the body as we hold the image of the individual who has rejected or treated us poorly. And then two, bringing up an ideal parent figure or an ideal figure of an attachment figure who's accepting and then holding them in mind. That is a process developed by Dan Brown and Sam Elliott, two attachment psychologists uh, wonderful work, and I'll be introducing it in 
the practice we do. So thanks for listening. Hope there was something in there that was worthwhile. And now we're going to actually do a practice that directly addresses some of the core themes we've been talking about. So finding a really, really comfortable position. Let's start by having a deep inhalation through the nose, like you're smelling a wonderful scented candle. And as you do so, lifting the shoulders up, around your ears, <clears throat> and then as you breathe out, dropping, and gently pulling your shoulders back to open up the chest. dismantling any of that collected stress that we carry in the body <clears throat> and also the tendency to cleanse the much muscles in the chest. And now for the second in-breath, pulling in the belly And then breathing out through the mouth and relaxing, <clears throat> softening. And try to have a soft belly to receive the breath throughout the meditation. And then lastly, squinching the muscles in the face, the eyes, mouth, the nose, and then breathing out, relaxing, Try to cultivate that sense of having arrived at an important moment in life where you really don't want to be distracted. You want to truly land all of the momentum of life coming to a stop, all the busyness, arriving at a time and place 
that is sacred to you, the time that you can lend and appreciate the experience of being alive, appreciate an experience without adding anything to it, just the quality of being, not feeling we need to be somewhere else, be doing something else, be worrying about someone else. All of those habitually ingrained tendencies that deprive us of appreciating our lives and cherishing the time we have on this planet. Now it goes without saying that in the past when we've reached periods where we didn't weigh ourselves down with obligations and responsibilities, we've been primed socially to plan or come up with something else to worry about. There's almost a prohibition against simply being and appreciating the basic fundamentals of our existence. The mind is wired in such a way that when we'd stop paying overly undue attention to the world around us, it triggers self-related thought, default mode operation. We start thinking about events and how they relate to us or things that might happen. So for this period of time, let's see if we can just stay present without adding any of that to the experience. To do that, we have to keep in our awareness as a task actual sensations that are occurring right now. So, for example, the sound of the air conditioner and distant cars and horns from the street below.
the sensation of the body expanding, parts of the body expanding and contracting in accordance with the rhythms of inhalation and exhalation. The light flickering behind closed eyelids. Not imaginations, but simply closed eye. Visuals associated with the optical nerve. If we tend to slip away, no worries. Just start to count inhalations and exhalations. One on the in-breath, two on the out, three on the in-breath, four on the out. And when you get to five, start counting down. Four on the out, three on the in, two on the out. Up and down. Or you can simply add a very simple phrase. recited softly and slowly in the mind, not as an escape from present sensations, but just as a simple grounding technique. A good phrase being, I love you, keep going, or may all beings be happy, peaceful, and free of suffering. So we'll sit in silence. Without doubt, the mind will be pulled away by thoughts, just when that happens and you realize it, feel good about the awareness. You're not doing anything wrong at all. There's nothing wrong when you're sitting relaxing, reconnecting with life. And when you awaken from a thought, feel good. It's a small form of a great process of returning to life. Just relax back into the sensations.
So at this point, I'd invite you to bring to mind a recent interaction that felt irritating or disappointing, perhaps leaving a felt sense of unease, disquiet, an interaction that was frustrating, See if you can bring to mind enough of the experience itself that you might find or hopefully will find some of the somatic experience that accompanied this event most likely when we bring up in the mind a conflictual or tense interaction, there might be some clenching in the abdomen or in the chest, around the throat or the face, a physical expression of those core processes punishing us for an experience associated with rejection or disapproval. Very often I'll feel it in pretty much around the navel area of my abdomen and sometimes in the forehead, a furrowing of the brow, a tightening contraction. So I hold the image of disapproval, see if you can locate any clenching or contraction in your body and just breathe first around these areas, relaxing wherever you find the somatic response and then breathing into the actual tightness and releasing it. What you're doing is known as memory reconsolidation. You're actually changing the memory or the learning from the experience while it's hot, reassociating it with calm. So while you hold the triggering event in your mind, soften every area of the body that reacts to this disappointing memory.
And now we're going to do a second practice that is both simultaneously very modern and also ancient, known as Deva Nusati in early Buddhism. I'd like you to bring to mind the image, perhaps, and in fact it should be for this practice, entirely imagined an ideal friend, mentor, parent figure who accepts you, appreciates you, cares about you exactly as you are, who wants no change, who doesn't believe there's anything wrong with you, who cares about you and who stays with you to make you feel safe. Visualizing an an ideal attachment figure. And how does it feel to be with or in the presence of another being that regards you with nothing other than love, kindness, compassion, understanding, and appreciation. You don't need to do anything to gain this being's approval. The more we experience secure attachment, the more likely we'll make wise choices of friends, partners, colleagues. We'll know which attributes, which kinds of feelings to seek from others.
So I'm going to ring the bowl and slowly when the time comes open your eyes and try to bring any feeling you've cultivated of connection, attachment, security, ease with you into the rest of the evening. <laughs>